Welcome to the Tech Leaders Talk podcast, where experts and leaders in the wide world of IT discuss the tech industry, leadership, and hard-earned career wisdom with your host, Barry Newkirk. Tech Leaders, let's talk. Today's guest is Chris Estes. Chris has over 30 years experience in manufacturing, financial services, and public sector industries. He currently serves as the finance technology leader for the U.S. SLED market at Ernst & Young. Chris formerly served as North Carolina's State Chief Information Officer and Cabinet Secretary of the Department of Information Technology. As a member of the North Carolina Governor's Cabinet, Chris provided statewide oversight of information systems projects, as well as managing IT services for state agencies, local governments, and schools. Chris was an executive committee director for the National Association of State Chief Information Officers. And while there, he chaired the National Innovation Community, a coalition of more than 40 states that share strategies for bringing innovation to government technology. He has also chaired the North Carolina 911 Board and is a past member of the North Carolina Science, Technology, and Innovation Board. Let's dive into this conversation with Chris Estes. Uh, Chris Estes, welcome to Tech Leaders Talk podcast. Thank you for uh, investing some time with us and uh, trying to uh, teach and coach our listeners uh, through their technology career journey. Uh, So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. We're great. We're very glad to have you and very thankful. So um, uh, we're looking forward to a good conversation. One of the things... um, you know, as we talked about in our pre-show uh, exercise, is that our listener is really that young to mid-career technology professional, Chris, who is very committed to the technology space, um, might be thinking about what roads and what paths to take. And one of the things that I found throughout my 20-plus year career of working with folks like yourself is that there's not a lot of conversation about, I did this, I did that. These are the decisions that I made. These are the opportunities that I had. Um, And so, uh, you know, we really just want to learn from you today um, and uh, really be, for lack of a better term, a virtual mentor for some of the folks who are listening to our show. Tell us about Chris as a young person. Where'd you grow up? How'd you grow up? Your life experience through, uh, K-12 and, and education. Great. Well, well, thank you, Barry, for having me. I'm looking forward to watching the other podcasts and other folks to, to hopefully learn uh, myself because I believe in continuous learning. So this is a great opportunity to talk to young professionals. I work at EY today and, and I work with uh, some of the finest tech professionals already. And it's great to, I spend a lot of time with those folks mentoring and coaching them. So hopefully this is an extension of those conversations that I have with those uh, professionals. Um, as it relates to your question about kind of wh- what made up Chris, what was my early life? Um, you know, I, I, um, I grew up in a rural area uh, in Florida, Jacksonville, Florida. Okay. That was my hometown. And um, I, I had three older sisters. My parents were divorced, uh, but my, my three older sisters obviously uh, spent a lot of time influencing who I was. As My mother was a, a working mom in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. So you, you can imagine how hard that is. Uh, and I see her as, as one of my mentors as I think about her life. She uh, she left us early. I, when I was 10, she passed away. Wow. And uh, I went to live with my father full time. Um, and um, unfortunately, he passed away when I was 17. Wow. So those life experiences um, help form and shape uh, kind of who I am today. And I, I'm very appreciative of having the opportunity to have lots of people mentor me throughout my life um, as I as I went through these different events and stages. So 
there's a lot of things that happen to people outside of the work environment that influence who they are and what they choose to do. So I think that's an important part. You know, as I graduated college, I I went through college and put myself through college through working um, and and several jobs, all, you know, part-time kind of jobs. One of them was working in this uh, TV studio. And that's what really got me excited about technology. I'm a communications major, broadcast communications, um, not because I like the, um, the being online or being the talent, as, as we've referred to in the past, but I, I really enjoyed the technology that supported television. And that was really when I first got started in thinking about technology as a profession and, and playing with the equipment and the switching stations and uh, the cameras and all that. So that was a that was my early exposure and passion to technology. And as I graduated college, I was I, I needed a job. So I graduated on Sunday and started work uh, six hours away in a town six hours from where I graduated on Monday morning because uh, I needed a paycheck. And uh, and I was uh, part of a team that was introducing some emerging technology. Many of uh, the folks on this listening to this audio cast may not be familiar with it, but it was the introduction of this really cool technology that allowed you to move information from one point to another over a telephone line. And it was called a fax machine. <laughs> so I, I was out selling fax machines when they first came out in the market. They were about the size of a four by six desk. And you rolled them in on a stretchy, something that looked like a stretcher. Yeah. And you'd go to doctor's offices. And, and I remember going to a dentist office and they'd say, hey, is this, uh, what's this? I said, well, this is your new fax machine. They go, well, we didn't order a fax machine. I said, I know you didn't, but you will after you see this one. <laughs> So I, I learned early in life about how to be persuasive, which I think is important for tech professionals as they move in their career. So we'll talk a little bit more about that as, as we go on. Hey, tell us where you went to college. I went to Mercy University in Macon, Georgia. Okay. Okay. And what, so you said communications was your, you got your degree in communications. Um, yeah. Why did you choose communications? Well, um, one of my mentors in my life was one of my brother-in-laws and he was in television. And so, um, I was just fascinated by, by the tech associated with television. He took me into the studio. I, I then started working in tech or in the studio at, at Mercy university. They had a, a broadcast studio and broadcast journalism uh, program. So working in the studio, I actually ran the studio. That was one of the part-time jobs that I did mm. uh, was running the studio and filming uh, students as they work through their uh, broadcast journalism degrees, etc. So I do have a minor in journalism, but uh, I do not aspire to be in the media. Uh, <laughs> never did. I, it was all about the tech that was that, that I was attracted to. So you're at EY now. So let's jump into present day. So tell us about <clears throat> the kind of work you do at EY and uh, some of your responsibilities, some of your focus areas, Chris, um, in your current position. Yeah, current day, I, I work for Ernst & Young, or we refer to as EY. And um, my role is I work in what's called SLED, state, local, and education mm -hmm. uh, across the U.S., uh, helping states uh, primarily work through their technology challenges, as you'll probably remember, Barry, I'm a former state CIO for North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So I spend a lot of time meeting with uh, my former peers who are now still active in, in the state government and supporting their technology initiatives. So part of my role is to work across the U.S. and discuss emerging technologies, data trends, uh, go into the cloud, 
right? All, all the stuff that uh, every major tech company is thinking about these days. And, uh, and I, I have the benefit or the blessing, I should say, of knowing a lot of folks who have a similar kind of role for a multitude of different companies out there. I was actually talking to a couple of those folks this week, Chris. So what, what do you love about that role that you have now? Well, what early later in my career, I realized that I liked public sector. You know, mm-hmm. I, I ended up working in public sector, and it was probably the most rewarding career in my profession. Wow! And coming out of public sector, I wanted to to stay with public sector, but work for a private company. And fortunately for me, Ernst and Young had an opportunity that that fit that perfectly. So today, I I, I get to do what I love every day, which is working with with folks on a mission that matters. Mm. Um, and when you work in public sector, the, the work that you do, it, it literally can be the difference between life and death. Over the last two and a half years, we've been very active supporting states with their COVID response, dealing with re- deploying um, vaccinations, solutions. So it's been really exciting to, to really work on that mission that matters versus uh, the first part of my career. I was in financial services for about 25 years. So that was more about the you know, making the, making a buck. And yeah. so it's a different, important, important. I, I really learned a ton in financial services. They're one of the most advanced technology groups. And if you look at all the industry sectors, financial services makes the largest investments in technology mm-hmm. compared to all the other industries. Mm-hmm. So um, if you want to be out in front on the tech, uh, financial services is a good place to be. Our last guest um, is in the education space. And he and I were talking about how in education and in government, you really have a mission mindset about your work and it's bigger than you. It's bigger than the bottom line. And it's, it really is. If you extrapolate all the things that you do out, you, you really change people's lives. You have the ability to work on things that can help people in a multitude of ways, whether that's, um, you know, the child on, um, on WIC or food stamps or, you know, somebody in a disaster recovery situation. I mean, there's so many things that, and a lot of people I think are attracted to that mission kind of mindset nowadays. So it's good to see and hear you talk about that because it's not just about the money. It's not just about climbing the corporate ladder. It is about giving back and you get to do that in a vocational fashion. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think, I, I think we're seeing that trend. You know, I'm a little older than probably some of the folks listening to this. And uh, I, I believe that we're seeing that trend. You know, if we look at the people we recruit into our organization, most of them are attracted to, uh, you know, being part of something bigger than themselves, mm-hmm. being part of a mission that matters. And, you know, our, our brand as a company is all about helping build a better working world. So it really fits that uh, mission that matters uh, philosophy and our employees are embracing it as they work with our clients around the globe. Let me transition with you into um, one of the, some, some of the pivot points, Chris, throughout your career. I mean, you've done a lot of really cool things at EY now, former state CIO. Can you describe to us some of the decision points, some of the way stations along the highway of your career? Yeah, Barry, that's a, those are all good, good questions. As I was preparing for this session, it, it gave me a chance to kind of reflect on some of those decision points. And as, as everyone learns throughout their career, there's some, there's some great milestones that you're really proud of. There's a few hiccups along the way and, and some course detours that you didn't always expect. Um, you know, I, 
early in my career, I was I was focused on that corporate ladder, climb the ladder. I worked in a company called Deluxe Corporation, which was a, mm-hmm. one of the first outsourcers to banks and financial services. And they were really a data company. And what really got me excited about Deluxe is they they um, they they really took care of their people, uh, which was really important. And they also um, took care of their customers, which mm-hmm. I, I think I'm always attracted to companies that put the customer first. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of companies that say that there's a there's a lot of companies that do it. So you got to kind of s- sort through the wheat and the chaff there on what they say versus what they do. So I, I like to follow what people do, not what they say uh, as a guidepost to help me uh, make sure that we're staying on track with with the, the mission. Um you know, as I worked and climbed up in Deluxe, I ended up on a project working for the office of the president, and it was a, a, a strategic change program. And we were basically re-engineering the entire uh, way that we went to market with the customer and all the technology that supported it. It was uh, at the time a company called Arthur Anderson, who has since uh, left left the, the universe, but uh, Arthur Anderson was our uh, consulting partner. And I worked closely with those folks uh, for about three years uh, uh, re-engineering. We used something called Michael Hammer's re-engineering process, which is uh, some of the older folks may remember that. Um, uh, It's not Michael Hammer, the singer. Uh, (laughs) And ironically, the guy who was my boss, who was over the program, his name was Michael Hammer. Oh, wow. it was really kind of how it's funny how in life these uh, these interesting things come together. But uh, we worked on this program reengineering. It was called the Customer Interface Project, um, and we reengineered how we interface with the customers and introduced uh, uh, a whole lot of new technology uh, to our customers to modernize the way we did business with them. So at that time, I learned how to be a consultant, and that's when I transitioned into consulting. And I spent a, you know a decade working as a uh, con- lead consultant on Bank of America um, out of Charlotte, North Carolina, as it went through its various uh, ebbs and flows and became one of the top banks in the country. Mm. And, uh, my, last, my last project there was working um, on bankofamerica.com. Oh, wow. And we were re-engineering all the business processes that support bankofamerica.com, and, uh, which is now one of the top web brands in the, in the market. So it was really exciting to be a part of that project. So working on these large tech transformation projects is is a passion for mine. I love solving really complex problems. And um, that, that work, I was also at the time the office managing partner for the company I worked at in Charlotte. And so I did a lot of the local events and public venue events and, and had an opportunity to meet the mayor uh, quite often. He was there for 14 years and I was there for about a decade. So we crossed paths quite a bit. His name's Pat McCrory. He became the governor of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, and during his transition, he asked me for some advice on how to transition. So I went over to Raleigh and met with some folks for a month or so. And next thing I know, he came to me and said, Hey, Chris, I need you to be the, the state CIO. And I said, I, I don't know, Gov. I, I don't know if I can do that. And he goes, well, I, I really need you. He put the hard sell on me. So <laughs> I, I said, yes. And uh, I, I hadn't talked to my wife about it. I got home and told Ooh. her the story. <laughs> and she said, well, what did you say? And I said, well, what do you, uh, how many times in your life do you get a governor begging you to take a job? So uh, I took the job um, and it was the best job I've ever had. It was really, it really changed my life. It was great. It didn't pay well, 
but it but it really uh, was a great job. So don't always follow the money. Follow that passion and the markers that get laid out before you. I really feel like that job was a calling. Mm. Uh, everything that I had done in my career up to that point had prepared me uh, to do that job. Really? So it was really, really fulfilling and very rewarding. We made a lot of great changes in North Carolina that are still in place today. Yeah. Um, they continue to evolve their uh, tech transformation. So very happy and proud of the work we did there. So I want to go back to something you mentioned while you were talking yeah. about your time at Deluxe uh, that kind yeah. of rang a bell for me, Chris. You said you learned how to be a consultant. Yeah. So <clears throat> that word consultant, consulting is thrown around a lot um, in your week and in my week and, you know, probably everybody's week in technology is my guess. But tell me what your definition of a consultant is. Uh, uh, I, I think the simple answer is a consultant helps people get somewhere they want to go. Mm. And sometimes those folks don't know where they want to go. So you got to spend the energy and time to figure out what is it that they need to accomplish and want to accomplish? And then how can you rely on your experiences and more importantly, and, and the experiences of your peers? That's why being part of a great organization like Ernst & Young is important to me because we have some of the smartest people in the world that solve some of the most complex business problems. Right. So by being able to bring that breadth of talent to any business challenge that any company has around the globe is very exciting and very fulfilling for me. So you would probably say, just to extrapolate that a little bit, you, my guess is you would say, Chris, that you can be a consultant either from the inside out or the outside in. Would, would that be a fair statement? Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. A lot of organizations have what they you might refer to as an internal consulting group, right? So that would be mm -hmm. that inside out group that uh, that where folks have the opportunity to kind of think about the way a business is run and what the challenges are and how to fix them. So a lot of internal consulting organizations inside of companies that do that, right. um, kind of like internal auditors, right? So they're really good at what they do and they know the culture and the business really well. Sure. But sometimes you need an external auditor to come in and kind of see things from a different lens and Absolutely. give you a different perspective. Yep. And that's what your external consultants can do. They can bring in a, a fresh perspective, a different view, uh, more industry knowledge because they see what other clients in the industry are doing and really help you uh, work alongside those internal consultants to accelerate uh, the direction a business needs to go. Yeah, I, I think there's so much value in having an independent set of eyes to take a look at a problem, whether that's a human capital problem, which is the space that I work in, or a process problem, or a technology platform problem, or uh, futuristic, where are things going, and where should we invest? I mean, that, that can be highly valuable for a lot of folks. I just wanted to make sure that folks understood that um, being a consultant is not always that outside purview. There's plenty of people. I have a great person over here at Clemson University who is internal to the organization, but he's basically a consultant. And uh, he works directly with the CIO and all of the departments to help them kind of see the forest for the trees, you know. Um, so well, even helpful. as a CIO, I was a consultant, right? Because, Absolutely. you know, you know, uh, enabling a business's processes as a CIO is is about consulting with him. So I think everyone, in essence, is probably a consultant. They just may not put that label next to their name. <laughs> uh, that's probably true. Let me also ask you about working for uh, Governor McCroy. You said that's the best job you ever had. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, that's a, you know, there's only 50 states in the U.S. There's only 50 CIOs in the in the United States. Uh, that's a that's rare air. 
uh, as some folks would say. So tell me why you uh, would characterize that job as the best job you've had. Yeah, there, there's a lot of reasons. Um, primarily, the, the mission that uh, this is when I transitioned to that mission that matters, right? Sure. The work that we did really, really mattered. It also um, it, it pulled on all the levers about problem solving. You know, um, as government is probably from a tech perspective, on average, five to ten years behind, mm-hmm. uh, at least when I joined, uh, behind uh, public sector and. Uh, what they're accomplishing from a tech perspective. Now that that gap is changing because of the new emerging technologies like the cloud. We can talk about that if you want. Why I think that gap's closing, but um, the the gap um, was there when I arrived. There was a lot of old technology, a lot of old platforms, a lot of, of stuff that needed to be refreshed and updated. Some of that was because when I came in, we were coming out of the the 08 recession, mm-hmm. um, and so the you know, states, the government usually lags behind the recession because people, if you think about it, it's pretty simple. You pay your taxes in this year in 22, you actually pay, pay those taxes in April of 23 for right. the money you made in the calendar year 22. So government doesn't really see if we start to go into this predicted recession uh, by some of the media uh, in the first of 23, then government's not going to see that until 24. Right. So government usually lags behind when they see the income start to lower, but they also are slow to come out of a recession. So mm-hmm. that's why the 08, 09 recession, you didn't really see the government coming out of that until about 2012, 2013 when I arrived, when they started to get money back into, into the coffers. And so that, that there was a lot of uh, um, unmet demand pent up demand that needed to be resolved from a tech perspective. So we were doing some really cool uh, tech and, and skipping and able to leapfrog uh, several generations of technology and moving into the cloud. We opened something called the Innovation Center, mm-hmm. which ultimately became uh, a, a program with 40 other states joining as part of the National Association of State CIOs, which I was the chair of the innovation uh, capability. And the Innovation Center was really about changing the culture of how states the state worked about how we use technology. It gave people an opportunity to fail fast, fail often. Um, and it was all part of a vision of trying to make tech uh, happen quicker, faster, uh, and less expensively. I've, uh, I've had a tour uh, from our mutual friend, Keith Warner of the Innovation Center. So I've seen it up close and personal uh, just from a visitor standpoint. Um, I think it's interesting that concept is one that I think uh, that story plays across industry, across um, vertical. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how the Innovation Center started? I'm looking for the stories of, hey, what problem were you trying to solve? How do you, um, how do you, how do you throughput all of that um, to make it nationwide? The the concept nationwide. I'm very curious about that, Chris. Yeah, so it really started with a business problem. Uh, uh, the state auditor uh, came in and did an audit right before I arrived, mm-hmm. uh, which I was able to benefit from. But the, the audit basically looked at a portfolio and the, the role that I took on had a portfolio of about a billion dollars in project work. Mm. And that billion dollars worth of project work was over budget by about 3x. And it was um, behind schedule by four years. Mm. 
And so what we learned in that process, one of the fundamental things that we learned is we started to debrief and understand why the projects were late and, and what was keeping them held up. It started with the RFP process. So as you know, government uh, has to go through competitive bids. It's written in the law in most states. Right. Um, and so we were going through competitive bids and oftentimes uh, the state would define its requirements, the vendors would respond, and then they would custom build everything to match those requirements. Mm -hmm. Anytime you're doing custom build, it costs a lot of money, takes a lot of time, and um, those those requirements were evolving and changing. So what we needed to do is get out of the business of building custom and buying more off the shelf. And so the Innovation Center was really a, a partnership with the universities, um, the, the, agent, the state agencies, and the vendor community to really start to demonstrate that the technology that that we were buying matched industry standards versus customization. So I, I remember I used to get phone calls all the time about you know vendors saying, "Hey, we got this this really cool shiny object and it can solve all this and world hunger." And I'm like, "That's great. Um, we'd like to see it work." And they're like, "What do you mean?" Well, I let's put it in our innovation center. Let's turn it on. Let's make it do what it's supposed to do. And um, about a third of the vendors never called me back right? Yep. because they were selling PowerPoint vaporware yep. and they, they realized that once we started to put their technology through the paces, that it wasn't going to perform at the scale we needed to perform sure. and that ultimately we wouldn't buy it. So they, they would go on and sell to somebody that was easier to sell to. Yeah. Um, so the Innovation Center helped us uh, streamline projects, helped us uh, identify business requirements. You know, another great example that some of your uh, listeners might relate to. We were we were ordering PCs, uh, and I'll just use one example: as a notebook computers. And I remember sitting in a meeting. We we're going to order, you know, forty thousand PCs, and some of the tech guys all wanted four USB ports. So we were in the innovation center. We invited all the vendors in and said, hey, we're looking at buying, you know, 40,000 PCs. And one of the vendors stood up and said, well, we don't have a PC with four USB ports, a notebook computer with four USB ports. And that's going to be a custom order. So just that interaction with the vendor community, realizing that a, a four port USB ports on a notebook computer was going to be a custom order. We were able to change the business requirement to the industry standard, which at the time was two. USB ports. Right. Uh, some some today don't even have them, but mm -hmm. uh, at the time it was two USB ports, and and that saved a significant amount of money and time for the taxpayers because we were able to buy equipment that met the market demand that the market thought fit most everyone's needs, and for the few people that needed four USB ports, we went out and bought a, an extender and plugged it into their side of their computer for twelve dollars. Right. So I mean. Uh, sometimes just using some common sense uh, when you're when you're trying to buy tech is is the right way to go. Yeah. Well, I lo I love the analogy of uh, common sense. Hey, listen, cool. Let's just test it. You know. Yeah. 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 And you test drive a car, and that's what I tried to explain the governor <laughs> when I told him this idea. Hey, we want to open an innovation center. He's like, "Well, you mean kind of like test driving a car?" I'm like, "Yes, sir. Just like test driving a car." It's a great. So when he opened the center, he he even said, "We're going to test drive." this technology before we buy it. And that became the moniker, uh, try before we buy. It's a, that's a great metaphor. You know, um, you, you do test drive a car. You, you take a look at an open house. If you're going to buy a new home, you, you know, you don't just go into it blind. So that's a great, that's a great story. Something else that you mentioned earlier, you said, um, 
your mom was a big mentor to you. Um, I can appreciate that. I was raised by a single mom who's a school teacher. Um, and so I have a soft place in my heart for single mothers. Um, who else was a mentor to you throughout your career and how did they impact your life, uh, in the office and out of the office? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I've, I've been blessed to have lots of mentors in my life and, you know, when I look around at all the people that have influenced me professionally, there's lots of people that I could thank. Sure. Um, so, you know, being open to feedback and suggestions. And what I always like to do when I'm trying to find out, uh, especially when I was younger, I would look at someone and, and if they had an attribute that I thought was cool or, or that I wanted to aspire to or model, um, I, I would use that. Now, not all mentors have everything that you want, right? <laughs> So really, some let me write that are down. Good at one thing, some good, they're good at other things. So you don't want to act, you don't want to necessarily model everything from one mentor, but a group right. of mentors, right, right? To kind of pull out the things that fit your personality and who you are. Sure. I remember one of my mentors was a guy named Rick. And every time we'd go into a big meeting with a client, he would always say, don't mess it up. And I, it, for a while there, it kind of made me nervous, right? Because I'm like, you know, here's my boss telling me not to mess it up. But over time, I realized two things and why he did that, right? First, he knew me well enough to know that I was prepared for the meeting, mm -hmm. that I put in the hours to prepare for the meeting. And he knew that. And he knew that, that I was probably a little nervous, which I always would be in a big, you know, going into a big meeting. Sure. And so he was just trying to bring a little bit of laughter to the situation, right? To lighten the load because mm -hmm. he knew I was prepared. Right. And he was trying to lighten it up a little bit so that I would go in and, and do what he knew I was capable of doing and that he trusted me. So it wasn't really about that anything more than uh, preparing me for the meeting in a way that he thought was appropriate. So it was a great lesson. I try to remember that when I talk to people preparing for a meeting, I sometimes use that sound like, don't mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> and they laugh just like I did. And, and then we go in the meeting, we have a good time and, and we get it done. Yeah. It is amazing how, uh, a challenge or a humorous challenge, I shall say, like that will help focus somebody. I used to coach basketball for years and years, and um, I had a number of um, players that stayed with me for multitudes of years, and so I got to know them very well. And, and I could say to Courtney one thing or Caroline something else or <clears throat> William something else, and I knew them well enough to know that if I – made the right comment at the right time that would help focus them for whatever task was at hand. And, um, that, you know, that's good leadership. That's good coaching. So that was great for him to do for you. Yeah, it was. And, yeah. and try to pay that forward as I work with people. Yeah. Let's talk about preparation real quick. You mentioned that, um, I'm a big fan of, um, preparing for conversations, subject matter, um, kind of knowing the, knowing the text, so to speak. Um, Tell me, tell me, where did that preparation muscle come for, come from for you, Chris? Wow, where did it come from? Well, I guess you know, in some ways, it starts when you're young and in school, and you have to do your homework, right? <laughs> and and sometimes you didn't always want to do it, right? Because it was a lot more fun to go hey, play. Hey, speak for yourself. Speak for yourself. <laughs> but but getting that homework done and, and realizing that uh, that preparing for that meeting was was less painful than the pain of being embarrassed when you weren't prepared. Right. So yeah, sometimes it was, you know, your friends are out playing and having fun, but 
um, knowing the next day when you're sitting in front of the whole class and you got to stand up and make a presentation, uh, it feels a lot better being prepared and knowing your stuff and, and, and setting a good example for all the rest to follow. So yeah. that preparation probably started at a very young age. Mm. Um, some of it, uh, became a necessity as I got older, right? Cause you're, um, you, you can't be successful if you don't go into stuff prepared. Winging it just doesn't work when you're trying to play with the, with the big dogs. Yeah, that's quite true. That's quite true. I, I find uh, the older that I get, I don't know about you, but I find the, the older that I get, that the more prepared I am for a conversation or a meeting or a presentation or whatever it might be, the less stress I feel. Yes, yes, that's a, that's a great point. I agree completely. And, and equally as important, your client appreciates the fact that you took the time to prepare. Absolutely. Um, and they know when you have and when you haven't. No, oh, they may absolutely. not say it, yeah. but they know. Yeah. Well, we're, we're both in the South, so we're too polite most of the time to say what we're really thinking, but they're definitely thinking that. So, oh, yeah. uh, yeah, that's, I remember as, as when I was in the state CIO role, I met a lot with vendors and, and, uh, it, it was good to be on that side of the table to see how they would come in prepared or not prepared. Right. And, and the ones <clears> that would, you know, the first question they go, well, tell us about your strategy. And I'm like, well, have you been to our website? Because it's posted out there. It's 40 pages long. It outlines all of our key initiatives and our key strategies. Tell me how your product's going to line up to that. Yeah. Oh, well, I haven't read it. Well, here's an idea. Why don't we reschedule this meeting? And once you've done your homework, we'll get back together and talk more. Absolutely. And I had done that multiple times because not to be rude, but you know, time is money. Time is valuable for everyone. Yeah. And if you're not, if you're not going to take the effort to come in and be prepared for a session, then, then, then go call on somebody else. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I kind of ca characterize that in my world as a, it's just doing some preparation is a sign of respect to the other folks that you're talking with. Bingo. Absolutely. You know, Hey, I'm asking you for 30 minutes, an hour, or whatever it might be. Um, and I respect you enough and value uh, this relationship, potential partnership, whatever the situation might be so much that I'm going to prepare just to show you respect. And that's something my grandfather taught me a long time ago. So a lot of folks in the sales world, which I'm in, um, will just show up and think their personality will carry the day. And um, I've seen that go really well in some scenarios, but I've, I've seen it go very bad. Let me ask you a separate question. As a young person, uh, young IT professional, when you're building your career, what are, what are one or two or things that you undervalued that you value very highly now? Um, I, I think early in my career, uh, it was, I, I think it was patience, mm. right? I was always in a hurry to get somewhere that I wasn't. And, um, uh, you know, there's some good country songs about that if you like music, but, um, <laughs> that aside, uh, I, I think early in your career, you, you're, you're wanting to achieve, you want to be successful. You want to put points on the board. You want to move to the next level and climb that, you know, proverbial corporate ladder, um, what I, I guess that was probably what I learned wasn't later in my life as I was more prepared and, and more experienced that if I had a little more patience when I was younger, I probably would have moved differently and faster. Mm. Right. Mm. 
Yeah. So. Uh, can you talk to my oldest daughter about that? Because we got a problem <laughs> with that. She's way, way too much like her father. So um, patience. That's a good word, man. That's a good word. Um, let's flip that coin over on the other side. What What is something that when you were in your 20s, early 30s, that you overvalued that really doesn't matter as much now as it did back then? Um, this is going to sound strange, but I think it's money, right? I, 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 I va- you know, I overvalued the importance of mm. making a lot of money mm. and over uh, being happy. And I, I, fortunately, I think our generation of young professionals today are, are more attuned to, to being something bigger than themselves mm-hmm. and, and realizing that uh, those that follow the mighty dollar aren't always as happy. And, and so, um, don't get me wrong. It's, you know, it's probably easy for me to say as, as someone who's had the opportunity to be successful and have some money and some savings in my account versus, you know, maybe someone who's struggling to get by each day. Cause I've been there too. Sure. It's easy for you to say, um, you know, don't focus on the money, but, uh, it really don't focus on the money. <laughs> yeah. Focus on doing stuff that, that you love, you know, the, the stuff that, uh, is important to you and, and all the money will follow. Yep. Uh, there was a book I read early in my career called the one minute salesperson. And, um, the premise of the book isn't really important. People can read it offline. It's Larry Wilson. It's a great little book. It doesn't take long to read, but the premise is helping other people get what they want. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you focus on helping other people get what they want, all the stuff that you want will follow instead of worrying about what you want. Uh, people see that. Right. And so if you, if you just stop and say, Hey, how, how can I help you get to where you want to go? Then everything else falls into place, including money, promotions, prestige, whatever it is that you aspire to. Those things will all follow. Right. Right. The attraction, the goal of having money looks a lot different when you're 18 and scratching through your freshman year of college. Uh, versus being like I am 55 and, and, and been wildly blessed beyond my imagination. Um, and, and I found myself over the last, uh, you know, during the COVID year, shall we say, Chris, um, reevaluating like a lot of people around the globe, you know, Hey, what's my goal? And, um, so that's a, that's a really good word because I do agree with you that the younger generation now is much more self-aware than I was at their age. Um, and they, and I was talking to a great friend of mine in Orlando, Florida, and he knows this guy who exited his company for several billion dollars, uh, out of Atlanta. And, and the guy's like, is this all there is? Cause he was just focused on money for 10 years and he's got more money he can ever spend right now. But he's like, you know, what did I leave behind? What did I not do? Because I was so focused on that. So, you know, the lens, changes um at the different age points and waypoints in your career i think so that's a that's a good word i appreciate you bringing that up uh, what are some cornerstones or professional accomplishment accomplishments that you're real proud of that you think hey we we did a great thing there i know you've talked talked about the innovation center and some other things but are there some other things that maybe uh, some of our listeners could gain insight from well, I think, I, I mean, I could almost look at every role that I've had professionally and, and, and think of something that I'm proud of the accomplishment. Um, you know, I, 
as I mentioned, I, I've been a part of some really cool change and transformational journeys mm-hmm. and because I love it, but also because it it uh, it leaves an impact on on people. And you know, today working in the role that I work in, um, you know, I, I can you know, I think you talked earlier about our COVID work. We're helping a lot of states work around the COVID crisis and sure. some of that was free and working around free and reduced lunch. You know, mm-hmm. and people may not realize how many uh, children uh, don't get a meal every day. Right. And when schools were closed uh, and they weren't going to school because of COVID, they weren't eating. Yep. And and like 50% of the population gets free and reduced lunch. So that means 50% of the children weren't eating. And for some of us, we take that for granted because we, you know, have the opportunity to eat a full meal more than once a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was really impactful when you think about the millions of meals that we were able to help get and facilitate the process of getting those meals prepared and out and, and getting children fed in some of the states that we were helping them with their meal programs. Right. So I don't even know how you begin to be, you can't be more proud of the teams that did all that work and, right. and think about the impact they had on uh, in this one example on people's lives. And the, and the list goes on and on around COVID, right? Yeah. I mean, who could have predicted that we would have been where we are, but, there are some really heroic efforts by all kinds of people in government, in private sector, um, in our company, working with our government clients, right, and helping them solve some of the most pressing issues around. I'm really, really proud of that work also. Yeah, no, I can appreciate that. I, um, it's, uh, it's humbling sometimes to think through some of those, um, some of those things and really see the tangible effect that, that a team can have on folks that can never repay them back. You know, I think that's a big, a big thing is, um, uh, being able yeah, to help you know, somebody. Barry, I, not to interrupt you, I, you reminded me of a, you know, I was in a meeting this week, um, around digital equity mm-hmm. and, and the affordability of broadband into the home. Right. Sure. So, and there's a special program by the federal government for the families that can't afford it for $10 a month. And, we were talking with some of the recipients and listening to their stories. And for some of them that, I mean, for a lot of us, we go $10 a month, man, that's nothing. Right. I mean, mm. cause we probably pay a hundred dollars a month for, for broadband access right. uh, in our homes. And some of these families were saying literally in the third week of the month, they would have to decide if they were going to buy a loaf of bread and milk yep. for their kids yep. or pay for broadband, yep. even though it's $10. So, as comfortable as we are, we get to listen to these podcasts and we got all this really cool technology. Mm. Um, uh, let's remember there's a lot of people that aren't as fortunate as us that uh, still live in uh, almost a third world country. They don't have access to broadband in some of the rural areas of, of those two states that we live in, Barry, yeah. the Carolinas. But across the country, there are a lot of rural areas that don't have access to broadband. And those children that live in those communities are being left behind, right? Because if you don't know how to open a PC and use windows or, yeah. uh, or, or use your iPhone, yeah. uh, your iOS, I mean, it, it's hard. It's yeah. hard to get ahead and, and break the cycle of, of uh, and I'm, I'm just blessed uh, that I was given that opportunity early in my life. Yeah. So no, hopefully I, we can extend that to others. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm so appreciative of the fact that you brought that up. I, my wife does a lot of work with, um, one of the charter schools here in South Carolina in Greenville. And she uh, is very close to the head of school, the 
principal. Uh, and we've known her for a long period of time. And, um, you know, she was telling Tracy some of those stories that, you know, when COVID happened and they had everything shut down, those kids couldn't, they, they didn't, they didn't get fed, but they also didn't have access to any kind of education because they couldn't get there. And so <clears throat> one of the things that this lady was telling us both is that she's very concerned about her student population of how far behind they will be. And, um, some of the, you know, as we've all seen and experience sometimes the mental and emotional effects of, um, you know, all of that. And it, it's amazing when you can lock into a mission to, to try to help people do some of these things to help others. I mean, it, it just changes the game. Let's talk about the stuff that you can't predict. Um, are there things in your career that looking back on it now, you said, I I can't predict this or I shouldn't have tried to predict that. Uh, that got me into a pickle. Um, are there things that you could share with us that you can't or couldn't predict at the time? Yeah, I think uh, for me, some of those career transitions and the choices okay. um, are, are, are really tricky spots, right? Um, you know, I, I look back at my career and I, I've been blessed to have the opportunity to work for some of the finest companies in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and moving between those companies was always a really tough choice. Um, and sometimes looking back, some of my friends who didn't move between companies are just as successful as I was, or maybe even more. Um, I remember when I was at Deluxe, a number of my colleagues went to work at EY, where I work now. Um, I didn't. I, I had talked to EY, but it just didn't feel like it was the right thing for me to do at the time. So mm -hmm. I went in another direction. Four or five of them went to EY. Um, I went through multiple series of companies, some some through, you know, went chapter 11. So I had to go find a new job kind of scenario. Um, but being a survivor, you just keep going, right? That's right. But the some of my friends that left Deluxe about the same time I did and went to EY, EY has a mandatory retirement for partners at age 60. I'm not a, a, a partner, I'm a managing director, so I don't get to retire at 60. I get the pleasure of continuing to work. So some of those folks that I grew up with as I now uh, am approaching 60, I'm 58, they're, uh, they're starting to retire and uh, I'll be continuing to work. So sometimes uh, that careful you know, when you start thinking about making changes in your professional career, kind of think you got to think long term. Mm -hmm. And often as young workers, we get focused on, I want to make a little bit more here, 20 percent more there. And, and sometimes that 20 percent more doesn't pay off in the long run. So be careful. Um, I'm not regretting any of the choices that I've made. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they gave me wonderful opportunities, but I'm also sometimes think, you know, if I had to do it over again, would I would I have made that change at that point in my career? Or should I stayed where I was or followed this group of people? You know, for me, career changes is also about people. Right. Because at the end of the day, the people you work with is the most important part. Mm -hmm. And uh, make and surrounding yourself with the kind of people you want to be around because you spend more time with them than you do your family. Sure. If you think about it, you know, you spend eight, 12 hours a day with this group of people, it, it better be people that you like to be around that you have fun with right. uh, that you enjoy. Cause if you're miserable every day, you go in and talk to those people, 
you're going to have a really miserable life. That's right. And then you're going to bring that home and have a miserable life at home because it's not going to be any fun either. So make sure you surround yourself with the kind of people you want to be around that, that challenge you, that stretch you, that, that help you grow. Um, so th those are some of the lessons that I've learned about my setbacks and forward movement. I'm yeah. not sure if that's in your question. No, that's really good. It probably takes you back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, Chris, and the, the patience and not chasing the money. Yeah, it does. I mean, it, it, it's all, it's all kind of tied together. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I made a couple of big mistakes in my career and looking back on it now, I was, I was impatient. I was impatient and, um, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, as they say. And so, um, it is what it is and it's worked out fine. But when you think, think back on some of the things that, Oh, wow. I was just too impatient. I was just ready to chase the shiny object there or, you know, what a, the next promotion or the cool project or whatever it might be. I wasn't thinking 20 years down the road. What are some setbacks that you've had? What are some uh, miscalculations, some landmines that you've stepped on uh, from a career perspective? Well, I think I kind of alluded to some of those uh, is, is, you know, moving to one company and thinking it's one thing and finding out it's not, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of like, it's kind of like dating, you know, when you go, when you go work for a company, you've got to kind of go through that formal process of getting to know each other. Sure. And, and then you realize after you get married that they don't put the cap on the toothpaste properly. Um, mm. Mm. Yet you know, again, little, speak for yourself. Those, those little <laughs> things that happen, um, inside of a business that you don't get exposed to until you're there. Right. Um, you know, for me, integrity is, is really a, a cornerstone mm -hmm. and I kind of believe what people say and trust that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. Cause I, I, I try to live that every day. Mm -hmm. I'm not perfect at it. Um, but, um, I, I remember one career change that, uh, that I made and had a lot of trust in some folks and, and in hindsight, I probably misplaced that trust. And it forced me to make another career change because I, I couldn't be associated with that environment. It didn't work for me. Right. And if I'd been a little more patient, done a little more due diligence, I probably wouldn't have been into that, that setback. And so I had to kind of recalibrate, start over. But yeah. I learned something. Yeah. And so next time I was always more careful and cautious. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I have a, a prime story. I went to work for a software startup. I've been in the software business for about five or six years with another very successful company. And one of that company's founders started a different firm and he recruited me to come over and, and I knew, um, knew him pretty well, done a lot of stuff with him. And, um, I asked him in the interview process, I said, what's your, and it was a 10 person company. And I said, what's your accounts receivable? Cause I know they, you know, software companies burn cash and he goes, Oh, we're 30 days. And I just took him at his word and then I got there and I found out they were 180 days and, you know, they had, you know, over a million dollars in accounts receivable and, you know, one of my checks didn't go through and, you know, I had a wife and two kids and a dog and a mortgage and I'm like, oh boy, you know, I made a mistake here. So, yeah. um, you know, taking the extra time to check some of those boxes to do what I call a backdoor reference if you can't get that information directly uh, can be very, very helpful and help you avoid some of those landmines. So, uh, I think a lot of people have those stories and, 
it would be good if folks listening to this could avoid stuff like that. So that's really well, good. That, it would be good if they can avoid it, but also they learn. Hopefully, if they do go through it, they learn from it. Uh, and um, you know, that's part of life, right? Is is uh, learning from those those potholes and that, that we hit, and then making sure that we swerve around them next time we see one. That's a great point. That's so true. So true. What are some of your core principles? What are uh, some things that kind of make up Chris? You talked about integrity. You talked about learning. Um, tell, tell, give us a paint that the rest of that core principle picture for Chris Estes. Yeah, I think, I think, uh, it's, it's trust, which, mm. um, trust to me comes in the form of, uh, time, mm -hmm. right. So kind of contrary to that patient thing, you earn trust. Right. Um, and, and so it takes a little time to, to trust people and, mm -hmm. and hopefully, um, and, People will trust me as they interact with me. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why I can be successful in the future is because I know I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. Sure. That is one of my life principles is do what you say you're going to do. Mm. Um, so um, the, the other piece is, uh, is, is I love solving complex problems. I think I've alluded to that before. So, mm. you know, putting myself in a position to be around problems is, is sounds odd but it's really a place that i like to I like to hover i like to play in so um don't be afraid to to go after problems because the people who solve the most complex problems are usually the ones that that get rewarded the most right if mm -hmm. it was easy everybody would be doing it right so go after the, the places that challenge you and challenge or are challenging things to work on and then i guess one of, one of my other principles is people and and being um, as I've alluded to, being associated with the kind of people you want to aspire to, but but also being an example for other people, especially the young professionals, and thinking about you know how you live your life, how you represent yourself. Um, you know, you go out to the bar and with the team and slam a bunch of drinks, and you know what example is that setting for your team, right? So right. think about people looking to you as for an example and. Not that there's anything wrong with drinking because I, I do it socially, but but there, it, it's like take everything in moderation, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, people like that. So yeah. um, those are some of the principles that I try to try mm. to align myself to and think about when I'm trying to make decisions and and operate each day. Chris, who do you um, who do you follow? Who are people that you uh, you know you talked about? Um, some of the books that you read and uh, I'm curious about the influences into your life and um, the things that you read, ascribe to, uh, who are you following to continue to pour into yourself on a, on a regular basis? Yeah. I, I think one of the, one of my go-tos is Harvard business review. I, I just, I find that as a interesting read and they're usually working on really big, challenging things, and yeah. they have some really complex articles written by, you know, or whether it be on people change or transformation, those kind of things. As I mentioned, that, that kind of stuff interests me. Mm -hmm. um, I, I found LinkedIn a really valuable tool. Yeah, there, there's a, you know, I have probably four thousand people connections on LinkedIn that I've met all of them because one of my rules is I try to make sure I've at least met the person that I connect to on LinkedIn, and. Um, and, and there's some really bright and wonderful people that write freely on LinkedIn and post articles yeah. or they, they publish white papers. Um, I enjoy looking at white papers. I 
reason why I like white papers is because I can get a, a lot of information in a short period of time. Right? Sure. It's kind of like the Cliff Notes version because usually, uh, like everyone, I'm busy running from this to that to the other thing. So uh, if I've got a 30-minute commute and I'm riding in a car or something with a friend, I'll, I'll try to pull up some articles like that so I can read quickly and, and finish them. All right. So let me ask you, I read uh, Harvard Business Review too. So do you go to the back and read the synopsis before you read the whole article? Mm, I have been known to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I have been known to do that because I, I want to make sure I want to invest my time in, in reading the whole article. So I, I've taught for years on this idea of everybody has a pitcher, a glass pitcher, a water pitcher. You know, we're in the South, and so hospitality is a big thing. And so my grandmother was the ultimate, and my wife, too, is the ultimate hospitality person. So uh, pretty much every year I give people this uh, beautiful glass pitcher as a gift, and I tell them, um, hey, you're going to pour out from this. Uh, what is in here. So you got to be careful about what you put into your pitcher to pour out to others, whether it's your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, your buddies, whatever the case might be. So one question that I wanted to ask is how do you fill your pitcher? Where do you, where do you fill your pitcher from so that you can pour into others, Chris? You know, I, I, I try to find time with uh, my my wife now, my children have both moved out and um, are living their lives, but we do spend the weekends with them um, periodically. So I, I do find time with family. So I think that's a way to kind of recharge those batteries. Mm -hmm. I'm an avid water skier. Ah. So that's my, uh, that's my exercise and, and release. I, I have a group of us that we go out and water ski every weekend, pretty much regardless of temperature. And, um, it's 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 a it's a release for me but it's a way to kind of reconnect with my body and mind right you just kind of do something that's 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 easy yeah. uh, and that i love yeah and i also do a lot of my own home improvements and the reason why i do that is i i like to see the outcome um you know when you're in the tech space and you're working on a three-year business transformation technology integration yeah you don't see a lot of change day to day, right? You, you don't. Whereas if I, you know, I, over the uh, summer break, I stained the steps going up to my office, right? They were unfinished. We had remodeled a few years back and I had it on my list to do for a long time. And now every day I walk up those steps and realize, you know, I accomplished something um, and I, I can see the results in a sh very short period of time. So doing some of those home improvement things are ways for me to kind of reconnect and see results quickly. Mm. Cause in our work, we, you know, the, some of these things are long, long cycles. Yep. Yep. I think there's a, my wife who's a coach says, uh, if you work with your hands for your job, you need to work with your mind, uh, to recharge. And if you work with your mind for your job, yeah. you need to work with your hands to recharge. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I so, believe that. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's very insightful on her yeah. part. Yeah. Very good. What's your, uh, what's one of your favorite career memories? I know you have a lot of great career memories, but, um, any cool story that you could share with folks that maybe would help them further identify, um, kind of your path to their path. Yeah. Fresh on my mind. I just posted on my LinkedIn this week, uh, uh, one of our secretaries of commerce, uh, secretaries Guevara passed away. Uh, yeah. Cancer. Saw that. Yeah. And um, 
as I was reflecting on our relationship and the great things that he accomplished and, and working with him as a teammate, uh, I was scrolling through pictures and I found a picture of him and I together uh, with with uh, Pat. And it, it just reminded me of the great time we had in opening that innovation center and, and how much fun it was and how festive and how much energy there was around everyone about wanting to be different and innovative and change change the world. You know, there's an Apple commercial. I'm paraphrasing. Someone can Google it and fact check me. But it's uh, those of you who think you're crazy enough to change the world often do. Right. Right. So uh, that's what I live by. I, I, I'm one of those crazies that actually thinks I can change the world. And I, and I try to do it every day. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. So I'm going to throw four uh, quick questions at you as we close up shop here, Chris. So uh, okay. first question is, what is your favorite word? Passion. Passion. Great one. What's your least favorite word? Lazy. Lazy. Nice. What profession other than your own would you love to attempt? Automobile racer, race car driver. Oh, nice. What profession other than your own would you not like to do? Mountain climb. <laughs> Chris, how can we learn more about you or your work? You mentioned LinkedIn. Can people find you there or uh, can we yep. drop your email into the show notes or how would you approach Definitely, that? Yeah. Uh, LinkedIn's a good source to uh, to reach me, and okay. also uh, ey.com. Uh, if you go to ey.com and ser- search my name, Chris Estes, you'll uh, it'll pop up uh, some of our latest thinking, and um, so either either of those channels is a good way to it's to reach out. Well, that's great. I, I'm so grateful and very thankful for your time, and I just want to say thank you very much, and um, just we appreciate you being part of our. Uh, launching of Tech Leaders Talk podcast, Chris. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Ray. I appreciate you including me. It's been great. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today on the Tech Leaders Talk podcast. Learn more about our show at techleaderstalkpodcast.com and follow us on social media. We are Tech Leaders Talk podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And we're on Twitter at Tech Leaders Pod. Subscribe to our show wherever you get podcasts. And please share this episode with at least one person in your life who would benefit. Until next time, tech leaders, keep talking.